0: There is the book that we've been using, A View from the Zoo, that's by a gentleman who's taking real-life experiences dealing with animals and trying to make some spiritual parallels. Let me give you one that, that I found very challenging. It's called It Will Be Different for Me. He writes this, Bandit was irresistible. No raccoon could ever have existed that was as naturally cute as this 90-day-old bundle that my neighbor, Julie, had purchased at the pet store. He would ride around on her shoulders. Seemed to be one of uh, one raccoon advertisement that raccoons make great pets. I mentioned Julian Bandit to our zoo veterinarian one day and inquired as to why more people didn't keep raccoons as pets. His answer floored me. He said, they undergo a glandular change at about 24 months, and after that they become unpredictable, independent, and often attack their owners. Are there exceptions, I inquired. He says, none that I've ever heard of. Then Julie is likely to be bitten by her own raccoon any time now, I should think. Since a 30-pound raccoon can be equal to a 100-pound dog in a scrap, I felt compelled to mention to my neighbor the coming change in her pet. She sat, listened politely as I explained what an eminent world authority had shared with me concerning her raccoon and their nature. I'll never forget her answer. It will be different for me. Bandit is different. She smiled and said, Bandit would not hurt me. He just wouldn't. Three months later, Julie was undergoing plastic surgery for facial lacerations sustained when her adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. Bandit was then released into the wild. That happened about 15 years ago, and I've heard Julie's reply in my mind many times. It will be different for me. Rob, a 16-year-old boy, said, I know what I'm doing. It's different for me. I know all about drugs. My dad's a pharmacist. He overdosed six months later and spent two months in a mental ward. Judy, a 15-year-old girl, said, I know he's, this boyfriend's been around a lot, but it's different with us. He really loves me. He really does. We're different than others. She is now 25, living at home with her 9-year-old son. The son never met his dad. Jerry, an 18-year-old college student, declared, I'm different. A few drinks won't slow me down. Jerry is now dead. He took three friends with him. When he drove off an embankment, they were all drunk. Pat, a 35-year-old woman, contended, My kids are different. It'll be different for them. They can handle the divorce. I'll spend more time with them. Besides, my lover is great with kids. Pat divorced her husband, got remarried to her lover. She divorced again after he tried to molest one of her kids. The children haven't slept well for years and need to see a counselor every week. David, a 40-plus-year-old executive, said this, Wow, she's beautiful. Her husband is away on a business trip. Nobody will know. It will be different, exciting, temporary. David ended up causing this man's wife to become pregnant. To avoid scandal, he had the man killed. He felt compelled to marry the woman, then the baby died. David's life was never the same again. That incident caused members of his own family to turn against him. One of his own children even tried to kill him. I'm sure he never dreamed that things could get so tangled. I'm sure he thought, it'll be different for me. By the way, you can find that executive story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 of the Bible. Let's take one step back and look at our lives. Are we in violation of some well-known axiom? Are are, are our closest friends or relatives warning us about something? Are we in conflict with the clear teaching of scriptures? Now repeat after me loud and clear that that this phrase, maybe it won't be different for me. Now he uses this type of illustrations, taking things from an animal kingdom to try to draw some spiritual lessons. Some of them are funny, some of them are very pointed. He's not the only one that used that type of literary device. King David did. When King David was writing his psalms, he paused at one point in his life and he said, let me use animals. Use interaction between animal and people and write about spiritual truth. That's Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a shepherd psalm. It is a psalm, as you start reading, about God and you as portrayed by a shepherd with his sheep. Now David knew what he was talking about. David had grown up as a young boy. He was tending sheep for his father. For years he lived in the shepherd community. When he became a king, he was called a shepherd at times. And this is not unusual. Many of the prophets called the kings shepherds. And so his job that he was working at for nearly 40 years, he was shepherding people. He was guiding people like a king should do. And he knew what he was talking about because when he writes this story, it's towards the end of his 40-year reign, and his son that we just made comment about, his son is trying to kill him. His son Absalom is causing a revolt, chasing him into the wilderness. And David, whenever he's penning it, most think that it's some night that he's out there in some building, he's an old man, and he's away from his palace, or maybe it's right after he got back, and he's penning the words and talking about his experience, about how he's being chased, and he's being hunted down, and there's the wild animals, but the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want... He makes me to lie down. In the midst of all this distress, the Lord takes care of me. And he uses that shepherd theme, that shepherd analogy to say, here's how good God is to me when other people aren't so good to me. And he continues through that whole passage, talking and reflecting. And it makes a whole lot more sense to us if we just remind ourselves, when you read this the next time, uh, just to to refresh and to say, okay, How did Old Testament, how did a Middle Eastern, how did ancient Near Eastern individuals, how did the shepherds and the sheep react with one another? Now we talked about this, that the shepherds were real close to their sheep, that the shepherds at times, they took care of their sheep all the time I should say, 24-7, that they would uh, would make sure they're fed, they're pastured, but there were some times that they would have to endanger their own lives to try to protect those sheep. They were it. The sheep were a dumb animal. They couldn't provide for themselves. They didn't have teeth to fend off the enemies. They were totally relying upon the shepherd and David says that's the way I am. Sheep were an animal that often strays and gets into trouble. All we like sheep have gone astray. And so he says that's the way God is with me. I stray and God rescues me. And in that, in that culture they would get real attached to their sheep. They were like pets to a, to a degree. And oftentimes they would name them. Jesus talks about that. He's the good shepherd. He knows you by name. And so the this, this shepherd sheep idea it was tremendous how that was uh, a relationship that was impacting. And it portrays what we are and it portrays how God acts. Now we've already gone through verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 where it's clearly the shepherd sheep motif. We're getting to verses 5 and 6. There's a debate on whether David continues that same motif where he's talking about God and us shepherd sheep? Or is he talking more about God as a shepherd host? To the travelers who would come through the wilderness area and there was no holiday inns, there were no, you know, there were no budget aids, no lights were left on. Okay? And you would be very dependent if you're a traveler upon the hospitality of locals. Is that what he's talking about in verses 5 and 6? Has he shifted a little bit from the animal but focusing on the shepherd and how the shepherd is practicing hospitality? I'm going to lean that way. I know many others who do as well, and yet there's other Bible scholars that say, no, it's still the shepherd and the sheep. Either way, here's the conclusion of verses 5 and 6. David is going to praise God. He is thinking about how great and kind God is in taking care and providing as a host provides for a traveler. And David, like any other song, he seems to repeat some of the things that were already stated. It's his refrain, it's his chorus, and he's going to state it again, just like the man that had sung. You know, may we be found faithful as people follow us. And that refrain came through a couple times. So too, David is going to mention in verses 5 and 6, He's going to mention some things previously mentioned, but they are so impressive and impacting that he says they are worth mentioning again. These gifts of God, what were they? That broke out in song. Number one was this. He says, the provisions that God has made for me. They amaze me. They, they cause me to want to sing and to shout and to worship. He makes the comment, you, make, you prepare a table for me. For those of you who choose to say this is continuation of the shepherd sheep, you would probably run back to that idea that table here, one of the words could be a mesa or a plateau. It is often used as well, most frequently and more common, as the table, that, that piece of cloth that rug, we would call it, that's laid out in the tent and upon which everybody would circle and sit Indian style around that, that, that um, cloth fabric and then eat together and dine, sitting and enjoying that fellowship. But he makes the comment. He is saying in this uh, aspect that, God, you are taking care of me like a traveler coming through. Now remember, in Bible days, hospitality was really, really important, more so than in our life and in our day and age. It became a sacred responsibility. There are stories in the Bible about this hospitality that indicate a little bit of how important this was. Abraham sees the three men coming, and they're headed for Sodom and Gomorrah. He sees the three men, and he runs out and greets them. This is unusual to see the people traveling through. Runs out, greets them, invites them immediately into his tent. And it says that Abraham got involved with killing a fatted calf and preparing the meal along with Sarah. And then then he he presents that meal. And it would take quite a while to get that animal ready, but you would do this for a guest, somebody coming through. We read about that same thing where Lot extends his home. We read about, and you and I have done the study in Judges where we talked about in Judges 19 how that Levite was traveling through, came to a town and nobody would open their door for hospitality but then all of a sudden one man did who wasn't from that town. And both in Lot's story and in Judges we have the reflection and the the idea that when you brought somebody in your home you would protect them. You are obligated to provide for them. You are going to protect them. In both these cases, in Lot's case and in that other man with the Levite in his home in Judges 19, they offered even members of their own family to satisfy the sexual desires of the men who were banging on the door and saying, we want those men who are visiting. Corrupt situations, both of them. Horrible stories. But it gives us an insight into hospitality in the ancient Near East, the A-N-E as I put on the board. How that there was such an impression upon people that they needed to do this, that this was something so important. And David says, as he's writing about God, he says, this is the way God treats me. It is important as I'm traveling through, I will need shelter. I will need when I'm going through my life. I will need refreshing. I will need some assistance. I will need some help. And he says, this is what God does for me. God lays before me a table. The idea is a full meal the fatted calf. Give me everything I need for nourishment, for help, for sustenance to go through. And when he says this in the Hebrew as it goes through where it says, you prepare a table before me, it is the idea you prepare this time and time and time again. It's unusual in that sense that you would have the same guest for every meal time and time again. But he says, this is the way God does for me. God prepares over and over a meal for me. God provides my needs, not just once in a great while, but God does this on a regular basis. When he makes the comment in the Hebrew, it's emphatic. He prepares for me. Both of those words are in an emphatic position in the sentence. The idea is that God is doing this for me. There are many others out here. There are many other travelers, he says. There are many others who are going through difficulties, but God does this for me. That he opens up, that he provides for me. And then he makes this comment that God is doing this himself. That even though this God who is taking care of the universe, he takes time to meet my needs. Me. One who others are rejecting. One who others don't don't care for. One whose own son is turning against me. He says, I can't help but pause and think how great God is. That God in his busyness, God in his activities would care for me and provide for me. And he says, I, I can't help it. I've got to sing out some praise. I've got to want to worship him. I've got to want to express how thankful I am for what God has provided for me. Now, I know he said it before. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in the green pastures. You know, he feeds, he makes me to have this by, by the still waters. He feeds me, he restores my soul. He's met those needs, but he says, I can't help it again. God has done so much for me. And so often we take it for granted. So often we just assume he'll continue. And in grace he does, but we're supposed to pause and thank. In, in fact, David makes the comment, he says, in the presence of mine enemies. It's an interesting phrase. If we understand the story right, if the setting is correct, which I think it is, it's interesting what might have happened in David's life right about the time he writes this. Go to Second Samuel if you want to see it. 2 Samuel chapter 17, just back a little bit. In 2 Samuel chapter 17, this is the story of his flight. This is the story when he's running away from Absalom who's trying to kill him. And we have the full story about how he runs into the wilderness and and Absalom's people are saying, let's go get him. He's being advised. There's a couple different men giving him advice and counsel. And one is Hushai, and another one that's giving the counsel is Ahithophel. And Ahithophel is saying, Absalom, go get him before he can get troops. Get him now. He's on the run. He hasn't gathered his his troops. If you wait for a while, he'll get and Hushai. The other counselor is telling Absalom, no, you better be careful. You better be careful. Your dad is going to be like a wild animal. When he's trapped, he becomes more vicious. And people, you, you just, just let it play out and let people keep on flocking to you. Build up your own armies. Well, Absalom listens to Hushai. By the way, there's, if you read the story, God is manipulating working behind the scenes so that, God, that Absalom chooses to listen to Hushai because God is wanting David to have ample time to recruit people to flock to him. And time will be to David's benefit. Absalom doesn't realize that. But then the story goes on and tells how David then continues in the wilderness and he's fleeing. And what's interesting is as David is, is running and David is in great need, jump down to verse 27. It says, And it came to pass when David was come to Mahanaim, that Shobi, the son of Nahash, of Rabbah, of the children of Ammon, and Maker, the son of Amiel of Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite of Rogalam, That was not easy saying those names, by the way, okay? <laughs> they brought beds and basins and earthen vessels and wheat and barley and flour, parched corn and beans and lentils and parched pulse and honey and butter and sheep and cheese of kind for David and for for the people that were with him to eat. For they had said, the people is hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Was David, when he's penning Psalm 23, which some think this is the case, as he's penning Psalm 23, he is reflecting on the kindness of those three men, on those three that have just provided for his need, who have been hospitable towards him. You know what's really interesting about Shobi, Maker, and Barzillai? They're not Jews. They're not Jews at all. They're foreigners. And the amount of stuff that they give is more than David needs for him and his men. And David is so impressed and so impacted, which we think this is the case, that he is, he is so moved by the kindness of those three and he reflects and he says, this is the way God has treated me. God has provided for me Even in the presence of mine enemies, even in difficult times, even when when he hasn't taken away the enemies, but there's the trials and the troubles, God is taking care. God is generous. God is great. And even as I would say to these three men, thank you, thank you, thank you, I need to pause like on the first day of the week and say, thank you, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you've done. You know, what his bottom line is, what we've learned so far, is if we have a personal relationship with God, the Lord is my shepherd, then what has to happen in our lives is we realize we are important to him, that he would care for us. That as we journey through this life, that God would provide our spiritual needs, our emotional needs, that he will give us the physical needs that we need, that the Lord will care for us, and we can rest secure in his, in his provisions. That we don't have to fret. We don't have to struggle. Even in the difficult times when there's enemies surrounding us, our Lord still cares. Our Lord is not scared away by the enemies. Our Lord will open up his tent of provision and provide for us. Therefore, we give thanksgiving. So David pauses and says, I'm giving thanks for your provisions. I think he does something else in the next phrase. I think he gives thanks because of God's pleasure in him. God's pleasure. Where he says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. I think what he's impacting here is how God shows him great pleasure. James Mason, preacher, was writing about what happened in his church in Texas. His church in Texas, there was a young man and, and a lady there that had a child. The child was just five, six years old. And suddenly, the mother passed away in, in a, from a disease. The husband was devastated. The little boy did not understand. And, the, and Pastor Mason writes about how the husband shared how he was struggling and he was battling in these next few days after his wife's passing. And he was sharing how he went home that night after the funeral service, after the graveside, after the fellowship there at church to encourage him. He went home and it was just he and his little boy. He put his little boy to bed. And he's wondering, how am I going to take care of this little boy? What am I going to, how am I going to be a mother to the little boy? He said, and the little boy was quieted. but after a couple of minutes he heard from the bedroom, the little boy calling, Daddy, 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 where's Mommy? He tried to explain, but the little boy just couldn't understand totally what was going on. He said, so I crawled in bed with the little boy, and my little boy was crying. He says, when is she coming back? He tried to explain. And the little boy was crying a little bit, and all of a sudden he said, the little boy said this in the dark, Daddy, is your face towards me? as he reached up and touched his daddy's face, he said, yes, son, I'm right by you. Are you looking at me? I'm looking at you. He says, okay, then I can sleep. And the man, as his boy drifted off, the man thought to himself, Lord, are you looking at me? Is your face towards me? Have you turned your back on me? Lord, if your face is towards me, I can handle this. That's what David's talking about. Is God's face towards him? Do you, are you pleased with me? And it's very clear, David says, God has responded and led me to write, you anoint my head with oil, which is a sign of pleasure, which isn't punitive, it is a blessing. The idea of anointing head with oil in the ancient Near East, the A.N.E., that idea is, it, it frequently happened. You would anoint somebody's head with oil. Now, you wouldn't do it typically to a traveler that you've never met. But if it's a traveler that you especially have esteem for, if it's a Jesus wandering through your village and coming into your house, anointing his feet, anointing his head, would not be unusual because he's a celebrity. He's a commodity. He's a known individual that you would would relish having in your home. And David is saying, as I'm going through my life, God seems to show delight in me. He shows pleasure by every so often. He anoints my head, by the way, in Hebrew it's repeatedly done. He anoints my head with oil to show that he's with me. His face is towards me. He is pleased with me. For the traveler going through life, think about this, from the biblical point of view of somebody who is physically traveling and somebody is pouring oil upon their head, there's some real benefits to this. I'm not trying to be crass, this is just reality. What it would do is cool them off, okay? This oil would be a soothing comfort for those individuals in that time. Without being crass, it would make them smell better, okay? So they wouldn't be paranoid of their body odor after traveling all day. It would be, it would enhance the fellowship. It would would make it more palatable. (laughs) It would show a display of real pleasure like in Ecclesiastes where he talks about it which was that idea of you are special to me. That's why God would have the prophets anointed at times. Sometimes the kings were anointed. They were special. And he's saying, you do this for me. You anoint me to show that I am special to you. And David is writing and saying, this is something I've enjoyed. And he says, not only that, my cup is running over. The idea of that cup running over is so simple, you understand it. The Lord of hosts providing for the traveler far more than what the traveler expects. And so he's saying, God... You are going way beyond the minimums of taking care of me. Can we pause and make the observation? Has God provided for us way beyond the minimum of provisions? Has God given us far more than what we've asked at times? Has God given us, remember how he talks about it, that if the man would leave his family and leave his friends, I will restore a hundredfold? We have relished in that thought over the years that having left our families and moved to the, from the Midwest to here and spent time here, that God has given us family and friend hundredsfold. And he says that's the pleasure that God shows towards us. David remarks about it and he says, I am going to pause and I'm going to reflect that God has noted and it's in the provisions but it's also the idea that God is pleased with me. God will, will display to me so that his face is towards me and the fact that he takes notice of me, he delights in me, and he rejoices. David says, I'm going to pause, I'm going to praise, I'm going to give thanks for that care, even though everybody else has deserted me, it seems, my son, my son. I mean, if your, if your son turns on you, it feels like the world has turned on you. And he says, my son has, has totally abandoned me and he's trying to kill me. And I have some people with me, no doubt. We already read about that, that food was brought for the troops that were with him. But he says, I feel like everybody has gone away. But he says, not God. That God never leaves me, never forsakes me. And he takes pleasure, he anoints my head when I have not been everything I should be. Remember, at this point in his life, David has made some major mistakes, he and Bathsheba. David has made some major mistakes with his sons in not correcting and not stopping some of the junk that they have done. Not intervening when there was incest. Not taking the the role of leader when, when Absalom was trying to steal the people away. And David didn't say anything out of fear of how his kids would respond. He's not been everything he should be. He says, but God still takes note of me. God takes pleasure. God still extends to me. And David is not coming to this point like some of us do. As we go through years, we come to a point, we say, well, after all, I've done for God. God owes me. David never gets to that point. David is amazed by God's grace. He isn't assuming it. And he says, God, I am so thankful. Even in the midst of a personal change, change is upsetting. Change unsettles us. And it causes us to, at times, doubt and wonder. And David is through great change. He's out of his palace. He doesn't have most of his family with him. He's struggling. He's back in the wilderness like he was when he was a teenager, living, living under the stars, sleeping on the rocks. And he's saying, but God, you take pleasure in me. And I am so thankful, Lord, that you have been so gracious. Now, combining these thoughts together, when's the last time you have paused in the last week couple weeks, and take a note of God's provisions and God's pleasure towards you. And you took time to enumerate them, to elaborate upon them, as opposed to, the Lord didn't do this, but all that he's provided. Pause and praise, that was David's doing. But he says there's a third area in this text. That he's mentioned before, but let's repeat it. He has moved to praise for the pardon. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The, the words that he's using here, the word that he starts off, the pen in the Hebrew, the surely, it is absolutely. This isn't a, possi- you know, a remote possibility. This is a reality. This is a surety. That goodness and mercy, and the words that he uses is God's good kindness, God's good fortune, the idea of mercy is his loving kindness. It's a hasad. It's the idea that God is covenanted to forgive us. And he says, these have followed me. These are a part of what's happening. By the way, they come from the Lord. Okay, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Somebody has sent them out. These are divine favors that are shown. They come from God. The word he uses for following is the word for hunting for trailing. It's like the dog on the trail that never gives up. He says, goodness and mercy coming from God, they track me down. They keep on following. Now, here in the last year, I've shared with you this story about how an individual thought they were in real trouble. I shared about the woman in the Detroit area who got in her car at a wayside rest, and when she got in the car and started driving, she noticed some trucker yelling at her. The trucker ran up, got into his truck. And started following her. She was afraid when he came running towards her car that he was going to do something and so she took, took off. He ran to his truck and she drives down the road and he pulls out of the wayside rest and he's following her. And remember the story that we told her how she went down the highway and as she's swerving to get away from the trucker he is right behind blowing the horn. She's afraid he's going to do something to her. She goes up the, the ramp to, to like an exit. He comes up. She shoots across the highway and comes down back onto the highway. The trucker does the same thing. She is crying, she is petrified. This guy's trying to hurt. Remember the story? She pulls into the next wayside, and when she pulls in, she tries to get out of her car, but when she gets out of the car and that truck comes up and breaks right behind her, and that guy's getting out, she's trying to get away from her car and she falls on the ground about by her front tire and she's screaming, help, help, help. And the truck driver comes running up to her and he stops, doesn't touch her, opens up her back door and pulls out a guy who is laying in her back seat with a knife. He wasn't trying to hurt her. He was trying to save her. People run from God week after week, thinking, oh, God, if, if, I, if I respond to you, you're going to ruin my life. He's trying to rescue you. He's trying to help you. He's trying to keep you from getting into dangerous situations. When he puts parameters and commands, they are not to ruin our fun. They are to make our life with peace and joy. That's lasting. And he says, this is the God that I'm worshiping this day. This is the one who says, surely goodness and mercy, they're following, all, they're following me. They're, God, God is t- trying to extend to me his rescue, his forgiveness all the days of my life. Now think that through. Even when I have done wrong things, really bad things, David says. I have committed adultery. I have murdered. Surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. What sin have you done that God cannot forgive? There is none. For you it feels unforgivable. To God there is no unforgivable sin except for the sin of not repenting and asking him for forgiveness. That's the unpardonable sin. Not responding to the Spirit's movement upon your heart to say God wants to forgive you. Call upon him. This is grace. Grace that David says follows me even when I'm out of favor with people. He says, God's going to forgive me. Not everybody is so forgiving. Did you read this article in the internet lately? This is an obituary that's written by a woman's family. It says this, Kathleen Dumlow was born March 1938 to Joseph and Gertrude Chunk of Ubaso. She married Dennis Dumlow, St. Ann's Church. She had two children, Gina and Jay. In 1962, she became pregnant by her husband's brother, Lyle, and moved to California she abandoned her children, Gina and Jay. this is her obituary, who were then raised by her parents in Clements. She passed away on March 20 March 31st in Springfield, who now faced judgment. She will not be missed by Gina and Jay. They understand that this world is a better place without her. Uh, woo. Some people aren't so willing to forgive what's been done to them, but God is. Aren't you glad that God does not write that obituary about you? That God does not say, you're damned, you're doomed. If you repent, I will forgive you. If you call upon me, I will give you forgiveness, and I will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, and I will remember your sins and iniquities. Aren't you glad he does that? Aren't you glad he does Now, again, I preface it by saying we need to repent. We need to Repent. This isn't an automatic thing. But because of what Jesus has done on Calvary, Pastor Tony uses this picture frequently. Some of you young people will recognize it. You've seen it over the last couple years. And it's a very vivid illustration of exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. How you and I are the young person there in the filthy rags. All of our, our righteousness, our filthy rags before God. That we stand before God with our lying, our cheating, our anger, our gossip our greed. We stand there, not in wonderful Sunday clothes, beautiful garments. No, before God, we're sin-stained. We are smelly because our sin of disobedience and greed and lust, it makes us pretty rank in the nostrils of God. And the wages of sin is death, what we deserve. But Jesus went to Calvary And he took that entire wage or penalty of sin upon himself. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. He's comparing two things. The wages of sin is death, that is separation from God. Opposite of eternal life with God, the wages of sin is hell. Jesus bore the entire brunt of hell punishment for us on Calvary. So we would not have to bear that brunt that we deserved ourselves. He who was sinless became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him or through him. That's grace. That's kindness from God. That's that's the goodness. That's the mercy that follows us. That's what is pursuing you. And David says what I need to do is I need to realize, and he came to that point, that it never runs out. The forgiveness never runs out if we repent. If we repent, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life that God is willing to forgive. Does it mean he takes away all consequences? No. But does he take away the guilt? Does he take away the eternal punishment? Absolutely. And thank God that he does. Does he restore fellowship with him? Absolutely. If we repent. And so he's, David saying, I have so appreciated the fact that this holy God that we come to worship, this God of the impossible, this one that we have said, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. This God who I say, I love you, Lord, I love you, Lord, and at times I don't carry it out, but he forgives me when I repent and come back to him. And he says, and it's happened time and time again, and I'm so glad it's never run out. The mercy has always been there, and it causes me to want to praise him to want to thank him, to want to elevate him. There's a fourth time or cause or gift that causes David to want to praise. And it's found in that last sentence where he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, the questions that that come to my mind are these. What house of the Lord? What is he talking about? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is he talking about the tabernacle? He surely cannot be talking about the temple because the temple has yet to be built at the time that he's writing this. Is he saying that I will go and stay at the tabernacle and be there like a monk for the rest of my life? I think not. I think that what he's talking about is that idea of God's eternal kingdom. He's talking about that time of eternal life with God that we, that he would call kingdom, that we would call heaven. And this time and ages we know more about it. And he is making the statement that I will dwell with the Lord. By the way, the word dwell means to sit at the table, to be there permanently. I will sit down, and the idea is to dwell there is the idea of sitting and having fellowship face-to-face. It's not like, okay, you're going to sit out in the foyer. It's the idea that you're sitting right there where the table is, that you're spending time with them. The point is David personally is confident that he is on his way to meet the Lord forever and ever and ever. A confidence that he says this is something that, that causes me to want to praise, to want to rejoice, to want to give God the glory because I know that in a hundred years from now, in a thousand years from now, I'm going to be in God's presence. And I'm going to be dwelling with him. And I'm going to be there at his table, at this banquet, at a feast that's set for me. And it's going to be a wonderful time. And David is confident that in a thousand, a million years, that's where he's going to be. Are you? Are you? There's an individual that wrote a book, and I'd recommend it for some of you who are going through grief. It's by a Levi Lusco. It's an individual. He's a pastor out in the, in the western states, and he writes about his own family experience just a few years ago. He's the father of three children, three girls, and they had the horrible experience the day before Christmas or a couple days before Christmas, they had the horrible experience that their four-year-old had an asthma attack and died. They tried to resuscitate her. It happened in their presence. And the little four-year-old, well she was five at the time excuse me, that the little girl went to be with the Lord. He writes about some of the things that happened just before that. And I thought these were worth sharing with you. He writes about a year before, one night with his little girl when she was four, he remembered so vividly. One night I was tucking four-year-old Lenya, Lenya, that's her name, into bed. We were talking about how Jesus is called the Everlasting Father from Isaiah 9-6 in our family time. It was just a week before Christmas and we had been memorizing verses as a family and that one verse in particular and we were adding one of the names about God, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. We were adding one of those phrases every night. And so she was, I was explaining the everlasting father that it actually meant that God is the author of eternity, and I told her how awesome it is that it it is uh, because Jesus can offer us life even after our time on earth ends. Linya looked up at me and she says, how do we get to heaven? Assuming that she was asking about our responsibility to repent and accept God's eternal life, I responded by believing in Jesus. No. How do we get there after we die? She clearly wanted specifics about the method of transportation not just the mechanics of salvation. That stopped me dead in my tracks. Well, God takes you. You mean like on a unicorn or a horse? I didn't know exactly what to say at that. Uh, it was too surprising and beautiful to hear her muse so seriously about transit between earth and eternity. No wonder Jesus said you must become like a little child to enter into the kingdom. Since I had not come up with anything helpful, she thought about it for a second, then decided on an acceptable answer for her own question. Probably we go on a flying horse. She was clearly settled that this was it, in fact, the only logical way that the trip could take place. Then she added, but if you don't believe in Jesus, you go directly to jail, okay? And with that, she began to drift off to sleep. Once she had, uh, uh, yeah, once she had gone to sleep, I hurried to write down what she had said. <clears throat> exactly one year and two days later, she found out exactly how you get to heaven as she made that glorious journey. Those were panicky moments for us. We were trembling. We were desperate, hot with fear, delirious with shock. It was cold, dark, awful but not so for Lenya. The same night that was the worst of our lives by far was for her the beginning of an endless summer and joy unspeakable. She fell asleep here on earth and woke up in the presence of the Father of Eternity. While we began to live a nightmare, she woke up from a dream of this life. A bright, glorious day was dawning that would never end for her. Did she ride a flying horse? (laughs) I won't need to ask her, Because the next time I see my daughter, I will have made that journey myself and know how I got there. He writes a little bit later. Several months after Lenya went to heaven, we found a video that her older sister had filmed of her playing. Lenya was wearing her snow white dress. Olivia, her sister, egged her on as she was pretending to be the princess. She jumped on the furniture, by the way, she wasn't supposed to, and wildly spun and whirled around the room. Finally, out of, out of all energy and juice, Lenya fell to the ground and said dramatically, and then I die. Believe it or not, this was common behavior for that little girl wearing her snow white dress. If you haven't seen the movie in a while, this Disney princess eats the poison apple, makes her fall into deep sleep that only true love can wake. She is put into a glass coffin until her prince wakes her up and takes her to a castle where they live happily ever after. And that's how Lenya was playing. As we watched the video... Tears formed in our eyes. We assumed this part of the story was what Lenya had in mind, dying. But after lying on the ground perfectly still for a few moments, she suddenly stood on her feet and declared, and I get back up with Jesus in heaven. Our hearts skipped a beat. That video was filmed five days before she passed away. People commonly say R.I.P. or rest in peace as the final salvo over the grave. But for you and me, God has three different words for us to hold on to in faith as we approach the death of our loved ones. Those three words are not rest in peace. They should stand for raised in power. Because of Jesus, you can be as solid as a rock and as immovable as an aircraft carrier until the moment when your own personal flying horse comes to bring you home. Do you have that hope? Do you have that confidence? Do you have that same type of peace that can see you through any kind of difficulty? Do you have that stalwart of a faith that says, no matter what happens, I know I know I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That no matter what happens in this lifetime, I have this prospect. I know I'm on my way to heaven. I know my God provides. I know my God pardons. I know my God, though I don't deserve it, he will take pleasure in me. If I repent and draw close to him, he will draw nigh to me. Do you have that? Do you know that? If you're here today and you are uncertain about your prospect of heaven, here's what I would say to you. You need to take it. You need to take a grip of what God is holding out to you, a prospect of forgiveness and an eternal home, and say, I want that. That will see me through if I know where I will be. In fact, we have staff headed for those doors right now. When we sing in a moment, they will be there. They will be ready to talk with you, to show you from the Bible what you need to do, what you need to pray, so you can have confidence that you are on your way to heaven. He says, these things that I write unto you that believe, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not a hope so, it's a no so, but you have to repent and call upon Christ as your Savior. How do you do that? Go find out. They will show you. If you're here this morning, and if you have need of pardon, of forgiveness, you're a believer, but you have strayed, you have walked away, then what you need to do is take that forgiveness. Ask Him to forgive you. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here today, and if you have gratitude in your heart, for what God has done, for the provisions, for the pardon, for that prospect of heaven, then you should show it. I shared with you one of my most vivid memories as a dad. One of those precious memories. It's the middle of the night. We're sound asleep. When our oldest daughter came home, the very first week she came home, the very first night, we ended up putting her in another room and the door blew shut in the house and we never heard her for the whole night this infant. We never woke up. We woke up that next morning and said, oh, is the baby alive? Ran to the bedroom. She was alive, but I'm sure she had a terrible night. Every night, every night after that, she'd wake up several times during the night. It was her revenge. <laughs> and she deserved it. No, uh, we deserved it. <laughs> it is now four years later. Pretty soon we're going to bring a new baby home. And so in that, in that time period, she would wake up every night and so it was the normal middle of the night routine and she we hear this from the bedroom. Mommy, daddy, daddy. So I kicked Deb as if she was sound asleep. Said, you know, and Deb said, No. And Deb was due any day and so she needed her rest. And she said, She's calling for you. Ha 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 ha. ha. <laughs> so I go to the bedroom, it's a closet that we made into a bedroom. And there she is, she's covered up, there's nothing there, and I said, Honey, what do you want? And she smiled at me at 3 in the morning. It's like, honey, do you need a drink of water? No. Are you cold? No. Are you having a bad dream? No. What do you want? I love you. (laughs) And she turned over and went to bed. I love you too, but not at 3 in the morning. (laughs) In all seriousness, Three in the morning is pretty cool. For our father, uh, any father to hear from a little one at any time, I love you. It's 11.30 going on 12. Do you think God minds hearing from us this morning, I love you? God, I love you. God, I thank you. I think it's an appropriate time for us to say, God, we really appreciate what you have done for us how you have blessed us, that we can just sing about your grace, how amazing it is, how great of a father you are. Let's, let's sing. Let's tell God how much we love him this morning. You need to talk, find out about your destiny, you go, while we sing in worship to God.